0: Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to Semaphore Uncut, a podcast for developers about building great products.
1: Today, I'm excited to welcome Juan Verdon. Juan, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you so much, Darko, for inviting me, and it's good to be with you.
1: Thanks. Can you just give us a
0: brief introduction? I started developing software professionally in 1983. You know, I've seen a lot of changes, I've seen a lot of trends, and sort of what was... Being used back in 1983, which is called time sharing, is pretty much what the cloud is today. But of course, the cloud has a lot more options. One of the things that I was doing in the 1990s was uh, developing software with with Smalltalk, and um, I had previously used domain models with C and C But that was um, the tooling for doing that wasn't very good because even though C++ was supposed to be object oriented. It was kind of difficult to find the same kinds of thought around the programming environment. So Smalltalk provided a very good environment for the kinds of things that that you would which later became known as domain-driven design. And that is, for one, just using a model, a software model. So designing and developing a software model. And of course, Smalltalk was based on either model view controller or what was then called view model, which was you actually cut out the controller became part of UI, actually. So this led me to a lot of thinking around domain models, and it, it basically changed the way that I wrote software from then forward, right? I always wanted to think now about sending a message to an object rather than invoking a function or calling a function and things like that. So I just started thinking that way a lot. And a lot of the concepts that we were using in Smalltalk led to my sort of affinity for what became Domain Driven Design. We were using several of the patterns in Domain Driven Design before that existed. From there, I was introduced to Domain Driven Design, and I recognized this sort of similarity that I saw from Smalltalk and then continued with. And it just seems sort of like this natural way to go. And it was amazing to me that there were people somewhere that thought the way i did because i you know i would constantly sort of run into to a lot of resistance to this way of thinking because it wasn't being taught anywhere
1: thanks for getting that introduction and that overview since you are the one of the best people to talk a bit about the history of domain driven design and how it gained traction I mean, my career started somewhat early 2000s, so that's where where history (laughs) begins for me. But if you could give your overview of how it gained traction, where is it today and what would you like to see?
0: Probably Eric Evans' book is what I consider, you know, yes, there it is. I, I consider it a classic. I consider it a masterpiece. But a lot of developers just their eyes glaze over when they try to read it. It just, I didn't always know exactly what Eric was trying to say in some places or was saying, and I was trying to understand, but for the most part, I followed it. Jimmy Nielsen then had a book that was centered around sort of domain modeling that attracted a lot of .NET developers because he's a His book was using .NET, uh, C-sharp. And there was also sort of right around that same time that his book was released, this alt.net. And this was basically kick out as much of the, the Microsoft tools as you possibly can, except for the language and a few things, right? And then try to bring open source in. And, you know, so it was sort of this different way of thinking. And I think Jimmy's book sort of led to more interest on the .NET side. But there still wasn't much interest in the Java side of the world. I knew a few things that those who were trying to use DDD were stumbling over. And so I basically focused on wanting to teach those things in a book and it worked out. You asked another question. What was
1: maybe based of your experience working with you know young people today? Where is the management design in the you know general computer science curriculums? And
0: it's basically zero. Even in a university here near my home, right? Their CS curriculum is C I don't think I would be teaching people how to use C plus right now. I would be teaching them how to use Java and C sharp at, at and that's sort of like the low bar in my opinion right that's the low bar then why not some functional programming languages or or something like that now i think maybe you have to go to oxford or some other university to get into that where those professors who invented haskell for example are and then you can get into that But, but yeah we're just really not very advanced in university level software development topics so computer science i don't know i just I'm not sure that computer science is really computer science anymore.
1: Well, universities are very, you know, slow-moving institutions to say with adopting the rate of change and everything. Um, I think that they're having a hard time following because the the rate of change is on one hand, relatively fast. I don't know. TypeScript didn't exist until a couple of years ago. I'm now, every second person I meet is, you know, professionally developing TypeScript and that seems to be kind of uh, the norm today. So from that perspective, I can, you know, I have empathy for the universities and their curriculums. On the other hand, there are timeless topics and practices such as, you know, domain-driven design or generally, you know, test-driven development, those kind of practices that matter day to day. Which like could be incorporated, and it's not uh, not a rocket science on one side.
0: I actually, I misspoke when I said zero, because there actually are a few schools that I am aware of. The uh, one of the German applied sciences universities, I think it's near Dresden, and then there's another one in uh, Switzerland.
1: There are probably more, but it's far from want uh, to say mainstream, but <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, it's true. I wish, though, that people would see those examples. In fact, on our site, Kalele.io, K-A-L-E-L-E.io, I have a blog post from, I think it's at least one of Frank Grimm's students who had just uh, graduated, and he was already using DDD not only from school, but his internship after school and during school. He was using DDD on projects at advanced R and D companies. So, and he's written about that. Um, one of them was automating the grocery shopping experience, not just at the cash register, but literally, you know, as you put things in your cart at the grocery store, actually. And he couldn't even reveal some details because it's, you know, trade secret. So that's very good for one college student or a few of them to go out into industry and be prepared for that and be able to actually lead.
1: I'm sure you helped a lot of individuals and teams and companies, you know, get better with DDD and the software. Developers. Can you maybe speak a bit on that topic? So let's say we are, you know, 200 engineering, 200 engineers company and we uh, reach out to you.
0: Well, first of all, if they want training, there's no way I can train 200 people all at the same time. We kind of limit our workshop to 25 or so. And that can even be a lot of people depending on the growth that's needed. And sometimes what you run into is, you know, a very senior person and the other side of the spectrum, a very junior person and trying to cover that range in a workshop can be very challenging. Developers, when they learn about DDD, are generally very interested in it. They are attracted to the ideas. Still the challenge is developers working closely with the business. It's just convincing people that this is really the way that you have to develop software. And Mel Conway said this back in 1967, right? Conway's law that communication will reflect how the communication structure and the quality of communication will be reflected in your system design. DDD is built around communication, right? The ubiquitous language is there because of communication. So we are reflecting our team's communication and our innovative thoughts into software as a language.
1: Microservices architecture is all age these days, but do you know what it really means and how to implement it to empower your teams to make the best decision for the problem at hand? On the Semaphore blog, you can learn about microservices and how to take advantage of features like test reports, on a repo, and Docker support to build, test, and deploy your microservice application at scale. Head over to SemaphoreCI.com/blog for more information. And happy reading! There are a lot of teams that are embracing due to some motivations, and you know, uh, for good or wrong reasons, microservices overall. What are your experiences here? You know, if you take, you know, domain-driven design, and as you said, you don't want to call a function, you want to send a message, Going to microservices, more messages being sent. And we map that also to the communication overall between teams, individual, and microservices. How that all fits together based on your past experience
0: in the industry? Before you even think about monolith or microservice, either one, right? Think about modularity. And right away, your mind might think, well, a microservice is a module, right? Yeah, but I mean, maybe that's true, but then what's in that module, right? And so there's this sort of very, very far, whatever we want to call it, you know, pendulum swing toward tiny, tiny microservices. And every module is like one entity or one process step that's going to to do something and then pass along a message, an event, let's say, versus the monolith where nobody can even see which objects are related to each other because there are no modules there or the modules are not very valuable there, right? They're not really a guideline for anything. And what happens is uh, regardless of the modules, they're probably misnamed and, and not consistent That there's still this object tangle right everything depends on everything else not obviously not everything but that's what it looks like so this is where the big ball of mud comes in so monolith is not a bad word and it's not a bad idea it's when that thing happens the big ball of mud happens right where there is broken communication all this communication for different parts of the business go into this one area and they're all tangled together. Then you go to the other side, and you have these tiny, tiny microservices, and that actually can become a distributed big ball of mud because still there's a lot of coupling between that when when it's meant to not to break coupling, right? Or to at least relax the coupling greatly. So something that's extremely important is that modularity, first of all, but think in terms of if I were to... Modularize a specific conversation or a specific set of conversations with the business. Where would I put those conversations? Where, what module would I put them in? And that's typically a bounded context for DVD. That is sort of like this middle ground, probably more toward the small end than the large end, the monolith end. But now you can put multiple of those smallish modules into a monolith. So you can have 10-bounded contexts in a monolith, but they're separated by modularity and the business aspects. You might even think of it as a business capability or a fine-grained business capability that's in this module. You can pack 10, 20, whatever. Not that you would do that, but they're separated, right? So now you can actually make sense of this monolith, and it's no longer a big ball of mud. To the other extreme, though, pull some of those dozens of different entity types and processors or whatever into a bounded context, a single module and release microservices at that module level that I just described before where conversations fit like a finer grained business capability and deploy that as a microservice. Now you've probably just reduced your total microservices from hundreds to maybe a dozen or so. Now, right? We can wrap our heads around that. Even 30 can be difficult to think about, but carving down something from a thousand or more or hundreds or more down to a dozen or dozens, just your brain says, oh, we can deal with this. And if I don't know the answer to one of those dozen or dozens of areas, I'll just go to someone else because I know who that team is. So if you want to put those into a monolith, fine. If you want them to be microservices or maybe it's a split, maybe you don't, maybe the things that go into the monolith don't change that often, but the things that you decide to use as microservices change more often. And we just need to not have that clash or pain between teams saying, okay, we got to release today right now. And no, we can't because the monolith is, you know, like not ready for that right now
1: some people having hundreds or you know even thousands of microservices or and then you were mentioning you know a dozen couple of dozen 30 so I mean what kind of rings in my head is a human scale so can I even remember like okay we have 30 or tops 50 microservices I can maybe know them by name or majority but after it gets way out of hand on the human scale well then it's like very, very hard very hard to manage
0: maybe the ones that you remember, the names of and why you remember it is because they're the most important ones and the ones that you start forgetting maybe all of those should be in a monolith because you can't remember them because we never talk about that it just works right
1: people have like you know 10 year old application monolith not monolith doesn't matter and they have a test suite takes one hour to run let's say that's a good scenario and um the statistic is just saying that there are a couple of hundreds of tests that haven't failed in over two years. <laughs> so that's an area where what we found interesting. So, what is that saying? Are those tests maybe just always green? Maybe they're not testing anything. Maybe whatever you do with your software, they will still be green. Mm-hmm. You know, what's the value
0: in them? Or maybe it just works, right? Or maybe it just works and it's not changing a lot. Exactly,
1: it's just not changing a lot. And then there's that big question of is it worth running all of those tests those many hundreds of times per day, wasting electricity and time and money because those pieces of your software are just not changing. But it's on the other hand, people are changing, teams are changing. It's who is gonna say, let's not let's run this portion of tests because those haven't failed in the last 12 months. Just something connecting to what you're saying about what might
0: just well go in the mouth. I have had conversations and consulted with very, very successful cloud companies. I'm not, I'm not talking about cloud platform, I'm talking about the business is in the cloud, right? Any of these companies that have been successful started out by bootstrapping and getting just enough code running to go into business, right? And then this customer starts asking for this and this customer starts asking for that. And then it's at first it's a few customers and then it's dozens and then it's hundreds of customers and you just keep like pushing everything into this code base. And if teams, startup founders, whoever, just would stop for a few minutes and say, okay, we can predict that if we stay in business, this is going to happen. Shouldn't we start thinking about the modules that each of these things fit into? where do they belong and how do they talk to each other it can still be in a monolith but just put them into different modules now later if you want to break out a microservice from that i'm not saying it's just gonna. if you have that vision of we will need to break out microservices later you'll have that on your mind i'm not saying that these companies would absolutely just say okay let's take this bigger module and just like break just take it out and put it into a microservice that's probably not going to work like that because there are probably still connections and so forth but it's going to be way way simpler to deal with than that tangle that I've that you know about that I've just described and so forth right that's the that's the idea so if you're working in a startup just have that conversation it may take a day to figure out where are our boundaries. And if we needed to break these out into microservices later, what which ones would we want to do that with? And then remain in the monolith, right? Because actually you're you're cutting down on a lot of technical overhead of, you know, what if the network fails? Well, now you just have to worry about, can one of these things survive a network failure, right? One of these monoliths, or so we start to scale it, and we have three of them running on in different places. Can those survive network failure? Instead of saying, okay, let's try to figure out what network failure would do to these hundred microservices, right?
1: For people that want to learn more about your company, your books, your future work, can you give us some points, tips?
0: Yeah, sure. So my our boutique uh, services and product, product development company is called Kalele, and we have a .io top level domain for that. And so you'll find a lot of my work there, my workshops, I'll be teaching a workshop early December on the Implementing Domain Driven Design workshop, which is our sort of flagship workshop that I've taught thousands of developers. And that's a virtual workshop, so everybody can jump in there pretty easily. You'll find my books on uh, informit.com, informit, if you will, .com, and Amazon and any other online booksellers typically. People run to Amazon and uh, yeah, so you could search for my name or search for strategic monoliths and microservices. And we have a product called Domo. It's currently at domorobo.to. So Domo Roboto, right? It's like this Japanese um, play on words. But uh, we're calling the product Domo, and it is for event storming, live event storming, domain modeling, using domain-driven design, bounded contexts, context maps, and we even support uh, mind maps, impact maps, and specification by example or BDD and user stories. So, oh, follow me on Twitter. I do sometimes tweet about sports. So. <laughs> be- <laughs> So be aware, but overwhelmingly I'm tweeting about architecture and software architecture and domain driven design. So it's at Von Vernon, my name.
1: Great. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you and you know hearing all your experiences from your long career. Thank you and good luck.
0: Thank you, Darko. And I, I hope I wish you all success with your CI product too. What a great conversation. We hope you enjoyed it and learned something new. Make sure to subscribe to Semaphore Uncut on your podcast player of choice so that you don't miss our new episodes. And stay tuned.